This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Today, a topic that we've spent some time with before, the pursuit of more humane policing. Humane policing happens to be the title of a book authored by Darren Spencer, former sheriff's deputy in Colorado, we'll be speaking with later. The problem of overuse of undue force, sometimes deadly force, by law enforcement officers against citizens has been an ongoing concern in society. In fact, here in our headquarters city of Albuquerque, New Mexico, our city police force was investigated by the Department of Justice between 2012 and 2014. The final report cited, quote, a culture of acceptance of the use of excessive force, unquote, and a lack of accountability for officers who used sometimes deadly force in situations when people presented no serious threat. Albuquerque's police force has not been alone. Other police departments across the country have been cited and reprimanded for similar excessive force complaints. Consent decrees have been signed by a number of other cities promising to address problem-causing policies and procedures, including New Orleans and Oakland, Los Angeles, and here in Albuquerque, where progress toward reforms was labeled frustratingly slow in 2017 by an independent monitor and the local police oversight board but it was labeled as a totally committed response by the then chief of police. So with all this as a backdrop, it was a bit of a surprise and perhaps a small sign of progress toward more humane policing in Albuquerque. When on a midday walk in my neighborhood on Super Bowl Sunday in February of 2018, I noticed a parade of 18-wheeled trucks strangely rolling through the neighborhood streets near our little park. It seemed all the traffic from the nearby interstate just kept coming through, long after my walk, long after the Super Bowl had been played, in fact, for a total of 13 hours from 1 in the afternoon to 2 the next morning, all because Albuquerque police officers were trying to talk a troubled man from jumping from a precarious perch on an overpass down into interstate traffic. When I arrived on scene, they already had officers from the Southeast Area Command there. And they were talking to an individual. He was, you know, I could visually see that he was on the outside of the fencing off of Louisiana. This is Albuquerque Police Information Specialist Simon Drobik, a veteran of the force who was also trained in jumper situations. So he was part of the team working this scene through most of the ordeal on that overpass. That's quite a drop. It's a deadly drop. Uh, about how old a fellow? He's an African-American male, about 40 years old, um, identified as transgender but didn't bring it up at that point. We had some background on this individual on different types of calls. Either he'd been a victim of crime or committed a crime. So we had a, bit, a little bit of intelligence, I guess you could say, or hands and experience with the guy, what works, what doesn't. So when we're working with somebody like that, we're trying to discover who that person is. He was explaining to us, and it seems kind of weird that somebody, this is what he kept saying. He kept saying, you know, somebody's trying to get into his head. You know, and we're trying to explain, trying to figure out who is that. And he seemed to have been victimized at some point in his life, and that trauma might have triggered why he was up on that bridge that day. Never really got to the root of all that because he never really expressed it, but he did say he was a victim of crime. People wanted to hurt him. And it's our job to reassure him that we're not there to perpetuate that. We're here to help him. So he had some serious issues, but obviously some mental health issues to either schizophrenia or bipolar. So then he was standing right above eastbound traffic, right above the middle lane, and there was a, there's a pole there which he was kind of hanging on to. The ledge itself was only um, about the width of your shoe, so f- four or five inches that he was, his feet were on, and then he was physically hanging on with his fingers to the, uh, to the chain link fence. 
what happens in that situation and what was happening with this fellow? Well, th- the main thing is to start some type of dialogue with that individual and get get him talking and have him focus on us. We don't want him focused on below or people are staying around him. We want to try and st- stay focused on us. And it's very, very extremely small baby steps. Just having him turn around and look at us is a win for us. You know, he's focused on talking to us. You just start going into a negotiation about, you know, you, you, you immediately ask him, hey, could you please come off the bridge? You know, are you, you know we, we ask point blank questions. Obviously, you're thinking about killing yourself. What's going on today? There's no candy code in it. I mean, those types of situations. So you come out with real hard facts, like, you know, what you're looking at, what you see, and you need to try to start a dialogue to find out what got this person there to begin with. So immediately, you know, we see who, what resources you have on scene. And we had one of our lieutenants who was the sergeant of our crisis intervention team. So CIT um, was formed probably about 15 years ago. We saw a need to address mental health issues within the community and open a dialogue up. And it was just another tool for us to work with. You know, we obviously carry uh, mace and batons and impact weapons, but we needed a communication weapon, as you could say, it, or, or, or some type of dialogue that we could use to talk to people in all types of situations. Um, And then we have recently, after the DOJ, expanded our CIT teams into ECIT, enhanced CIT. And there's about 80 officers on the department now that have that extra level training that deal with people in crisis, almost like a crisis negotiator. So rapidly you're assessing in that moment, the first five minutes, what resources you have, what do we need to do, do we need to shut down the freeway? It's very fluid. Mm-hmm. It's very fluid. We can change situations and dynamics at any moment. I guess I'm asking for a little bit of insight into the training because mm-hmm. what our show is largely about is that we hope the listeners, after they've heard one of our programs, walk away with tools that they can use. Yeah. And you know whether you are dealing with uh, someone in your own family that's in crisis or has a mental health issue or is just angry you yeah. know, or any of these things. So I'm interested in hearing some of the techniques that uh, mm. those who get the CIT training are really good at, and, and maybe in, even in this particular case, yeah. we're able to use to calm things down or to get it to the next phase. Active listening skills, I think, are critical in this job. Okay. Because That's... so much time, you know, you see on TV, you know, this is the facts, what's going on, name, you know, you really have to take a breath and we have to train rookies to be great active listeners and just give people time because sometimes people mental health issues or or drug-induced psychosis, their brain isn't firing off as rapidly as ours, so it might take a minute to answer a question if we ask one, and you just have to give them that time. Right. Well, and we found a common theme in our program here is that that's a key to communication, is that people want to be heard. Mm -hmm. They want to be understood, and until they are convinced of that, that that channel's open and that they're being heard, then the negative energy can really build up. Well, you know, and we're not going to be able to solve that person's problem that call. So we, we never have a resolution, but we'll, we'll definitely have avenues for that person to get help. So getting the information, and then usually there's a backstory to why that person's in crisis. And then actually listening to what that person is saying. And like I said, not trying to come up with a solution, uh, just trying to give them avenues of how we can help that person. Right. You a, know. a different way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. All right. That and an extreme amount of empathy. You okay. know, you really do get self-absorbed in some of these calls, and there's numerous times of that 13-hour call that I was sick to my stomach that I thought this guy was going to kill himself in front of me, which was, you know, in the back of your mind, you're living with the fact that you're trying to help somebody. You're, it's your responsibility in that moment to help somebody. And uh, 
couple of times, he his fingertips were barely on the fence, and I really thought he was going to jump. So then getting back to those baby steps, just having him turn around, saying thank you, you know, just being a human being and being very empathetic towards somebody in crisis. And uh, I think in Hollywood and in TV shows so much, you see so much baloney out there that, you know, we're just going to grab a guy, move on, and go get something to eat. It absolutely isn't that way. I mean, I've been doing this for 19 years, and I said that uh, I've seen so much empathy out there um, from officers, and they really do personally buy into these people's stories because they really do care. They really do. And is that changing? Uh, yeah. You're seeing more of that. I think that uh, in, in 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 practice and in training, in practice and in training, um, very much so. Departments around the country are realizing that the Joe Friday approach just doesn't work anymore. You know, just the facts; it just doesn't work right, that way. Yeah. And yeah. we have to have a more dynamic police department, uh, more dynamic officers, and better communication skills. Now, the flip side of that is the younger generation is so much into a different type of communication than when I grew up. My communication was talking to people in the street, hanging out, playing, interacting with people. The communication today for the younger people is very much technology-driven. Mm-hmm. So when we do get newer officers, some are great, you know, have great communication skills, but some we have to kind of pull out of their shell because this whole job is talking to people. That's all we do all day. you got to be able to shoot the breeze a bit. Yeah, you really do. You mm-hmm. can, and you got to be able to talk to all walks of life. Yeah. Yeah. Officer Simon Drabek is our guest with the Albuquerque Police Department. I want to go back to the story of the 13-hour event mm-hmm. where someone was threatening to jump off an overpass. Let's explain. This is how I discovered it because I live in that neighborhood yeah. nearby. All of a sudden, I see all these trucks going through these little tiny residential streets, mm-hmm. and it kept going and it kept going. And uh, so that's a lot of traffic having to go into neighborhoods and uh, go way up uh, past the particular overpass. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you to talk about a couple things. One is why the shutdown was necessary. You mentioned in the article and on several of the TV interviews what you were hearing yeah. and the individual was hearing from motorists. So in that moment when you're trying to talk to somebody who's in crisis, it's like I said, it's very intimate and you're really trying to keep somebody focused from not jumping. What we were finding was, and, and this has happened before in these types of calls, and it's very unfortunate. Um, I don't know if it's a sign of our times or what, but people would drive by, and it happened quite a bit, and they would scream out, you know, jump, do it, kill yourself. And every time somebody said something like that, anything that we had gained with this individual was just lost. And it's like just repeating itself over and over. So we were really trying to, I mean, this, these, those couple of times where I really thought this guy was going to jump and I had that sick feeling to my stomach because we couldn't control that at that moment. And then um, factors came about that we did close the west side of the freeway. So now we had the eastbound, westbound, and Louisiana closed down because people were it's pretty atrocious, you know, to tell somebody to take their life as you're driving by. And I saw people with kids in their car doing it. Mm-hmm. It gets you emotional because, you know, what if that was your loved one? I've said this before. If it was your loved one, how long would you want us up on that bridge? And what would you want us to do? You would want us to do everything in our power and more. And then for some stranger to drive by and say something like that. And this guy was feeding into it. I mean, it was it was really demolishing any any uh, anything that we had gained. So extremely disappointing, mm-hmm. you know, it's just humanity of people. Right. You know? People say, well, just get a net out and just throw a net over them. I don't know what movies they're watching, but we just don't have those types of tools. Okay. We just don't. Our tools are verbal, you know, in, in right. talking to people. I guess, and I thought 
because, again, I've seen it on TV. You know, you see fire departments have these, you know, jumper-looking things yeah. that you know to help people to jump from high windows in a fire. I, those are not available generally? Yeah, we don't have those in town now. Those bigger cities do have those. Do um, they employ them in situations like this sometimes? I know in New York they do mm-hmm. because there's such so many high-rises. But our unique system of um, the freeway is if we had deployed one of those on the east side of the freeway, typically what would happen is somebody would shimmy over to the west side of the freeway. So we'd be moving this bag back and forth. Also, we have the drainage ditch in the middle. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you're talking about an incredible amount of resources, and, and those things are not light. Right. So if you have somebody in a stationary yeah. window, then you have a platform to, to fall on. But somebody that can be mobile, it's very, very difficult. Um, I think at one point the fire department actually brought pizzas out because everybody's starting to get hungry. Um, Was it, he offered food and drink? Absolutely. Yeah. Did he partake? To come over. So, you know, we, we're going to say, hey, we're going to give all the food you want. We did give him water because we were worried that he's going to de- dehydrate and pass out. But yeah. that's part of negotiations. You know, hey, you come over that fence. We'll get you something to eat. We'll get you all the resources that you need. We'll personally drive you to the hospital. I mean, it came to – and that's not, that's not anything that's uh, out of the box. That's just something that we do. Yeah, and 100%. forgive me for using a cliche, but there's no bad cop, good cop. It sounds like it's oh, no, nonstop no. good cop if there is such a thing, right? You oh, know? it's nonstop empathy. Yeah. I mean, really, you're looking at another human being, and forget the uniform that you're wearing. You're just mm-hmm. talking about humanity at that point of just a one-on-one experience with an individual in crisis. And maybe it's a calling for some officers or some guys are just good at it, but uh, at the end of the day, the, the empathy is what the key to policing and talking to people. I think this case in itself came down to fatigue. It was like, who was going to outlast who? It was getting cold. It was uh, Super Bowl Sunday, so it was, what, February. And I think that whole key to that was just we didn't have to wait some time until he fatigued and then decided to come down by himself. That's And that's exactly what happened. All right, and to the extent that you can say, what's become of that person since? We are just a conduit, the transport to the next step who are even more trained, you know, obviously doctors, psychologists, psychiatric help. And with this fellow, do you have any idea of whether he's taken advantage well, of the opportunity? So you know? uh, the backstory to that is he was at UNM Psychiatric Help, and uh, he was in there for two days. He jumped the fence over there at 2600 Marble. He got on top of the parking structure and started the same pattern over again. And then one of the UNM officers talked to him for about four hours and was able to talk him down again. So it seemed to be a repeated pattern for this guy. Yeah. And we just happened to see him on Super Bowl Sunday, and he was, UNM was dealing with him two days later. Right. Well, and I'm looking at this other headline. 16-year-old jumps from overpass February 6th. This was two days after the story that we're telling here. And uh, there's a picture. I'm getting emotional reading about it. APD personnel react after a young man jumped from the ledge of the overpass at I-25 in Candelaria onto the freeway below, and there's looks like a female officer with her head in her hands. Mm-hmm. And, that picture tells a thousand words. You can yeah. just look at the emotion in those pictures, yeah. Well, it's getting to me. Um, and this was just a couple days later. So this was two days later. I was actually up in Santa Fe and got called back down because um, he unfortunately had already jumped. And uh, I work in that Northeast Area Command. I know most of these officers that were there. That call came out of a mother, said her son's in crisis. We went to the house. Um, he took off on foot. It was a very cold day that day. He took off on foot, I think, just in his underwear and didn't have any clothes on. 
So that was that was a signal right there that there's some dynamic thing going on with this kid. Um, officers pursued him down, meaning on foot, trying to chase him down, trying to grab him uh, before he got to that freeway overpass. And then once again, he was able to shimmy over the top, and it's actually the frontage road. And within about five minutes, you know, the dialogue was started up, and there was it was it, he really wasn't buying into what we were saying. Uh, we were trying to use extreme measures. Everything we had in the books, I know the two guys that were talking to him, we had guys in below, too, trying to talk to him to say, you know, don't do this. And this is the thing. I mean, we can bring a lot of tools to the table, all the training that we have, all the experience. But if somebody's adamant on taking their life, then this young man did. You know, he jumped mm-hmm. off the freeway. And then with today's technology, this whole thing now is caught on a lapel camera. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you not only are those officers who saw it um, – going to have to live with the rest, you know, the rest of their life with that day. Um, now it's it's on video because we do have a aggressive lapel camera policy. We record everything. Now that will never be released because it's not something that we just wouldn't release. It's uh, We can hold on to that. But somebody could get a hold of the video if they wanted to mm-hmm. uh, through our laws, but I, I don't think um, any media outlet would. They usually don't cover this type of stuff. Um, and then somebody has to go back and talk to the family and tell them what happened. And unfortunately, that young man's family was, I think, on scene when that happened. Mm-hmm. So it affected many, many people. And I know that after a critical incident like this, we have a critical incident debrief where we'll bring in our psychologist, uh, a lot of resources, and we'll talk about it. And then guys who need that extra step, that, that's available to them. So back in the day, 20, 30, 40 years ago, officers relied on the bottle for self-medication. You know, I mean, there's a lot of alcoholism, a lot of suicides in policing. Today, we have a robust um, program where if you're in need, and the stigma has almost gone in the police department world, and probably the fire department too, you can go talk to a psychologist if you're not having a good day, if something's affecting you. And something could happen to you a year ago, and it might just raise up a year, you know, today. And, you know, I've seen plenty of dead bodies, and I talked to the cadets numerous times about this, like you're going to see a lot of tragic things, a lot of things that humans do to each other that you would never really see. And you're going to see it mm-hmm. over and over and over. And then one day you're going to just see the, the 105th dead body and you're going to be like, you know what? I need to go talk to somebody. And, and, and thankfully those resources are there for the police department. Well, I don't want to get too far off the rails yeah. here, but I do uh, want to make a comment that I'm thinking about is, you know, I already mentioned my therapy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't have a lot of serious problems. I've had, you know, relationship problems and things like that that, you know, uh, where I was really taking advantage of therapy. But I learned sort of just like exercise or chiropractic or, uh, you know, other treatments Mm -hmm. that it's good to have that appointment with a counselor for me every two weeks. No matter, you know, even when I'm on a long stretch of good luck. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because, you know, it's surprising what will come up. And so it's leading up to the question of, and I know this is maybe an issue of expense and resource allotment and that sort of thing. But it seems like it would be extremely valuable if almost every officer had a regularly scheduled, you know, even monthly check-in sure. with a counselor, uh, not waiting for that 105th right. uh, encounter to drive them to it. Uh, and that, you know, it, it might be good maintenance. Well, we do have a peer support team also, which is which we're very proud of. So the peer support team is made up of there's different rank and there's civilians. And when you go into the room, uh, it's just people talking, basically. So the peer support group is there if you need it. So, 
for instance, if we had a child death, everybody in that at that scene would have access to the peer support. It's kind of based on your needs. You know, I mean, I'll get very personal here. On October 26, 2013, I shot and killed somebody. Um, my friend Dan uh, Colt and I was an active shooter. He shot four officers. And it was a very cr- much life-changing event for me. And um, part of the program with that is, you know, you do go and talk to the psychologist before, you know, kind of a fit-for-duty kind of thing. You have to go back to work. And I found it extremely ven- beneficial, you know, because uh, – it really messed me up for a good three days uh, emotionally. You know, I had taken somebody's life, even though he had shot four of my friends. Um, but I found him extremely ben- beneficial. And those those safety nets were there in place. They were already put in place when, when those types of critical incidents happen. So, uh, you know, unfortunately on our department, the police department, APD, there's a lot of these critical incidents these guys come across. You can't go 20 years without coming across something that's going to make you rethink your morals, your values, belief system, and having access to being able to speak to somebody is, is awesome. Mm-hmm. It really is. We'll have more with Albuquerque Police Department spokesman Simon Drobik in a moment. Our topic today, humane policing. More from Peace Talks Radio after this break. listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, with all of our programs dating back to 2002 online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. In a few moments, former Sheriff's Deputy and author Darren Spencer, who wrote a book called Humane Policing. We've borrowed his title for our episode title today, but right now let's go back to my conversation with Albuquerque Police Spokesman uh, Simon Drobik, who was telling us about the APD 13-hour event that successfully and finally talked a man down who was threatening suicide by jumping off an interstate overpass. Other topics right now with Officer Drobik. There's this big arc of conversation nationally that sometimes reaches a fever pitch when an officer in any town USA uh, makes a bad decision. Right. Albuquerque's been in the spotlight too some uh, and it has been under a, a Department of Justice um, realignment or mm-hmm. refocusing. Uh, what's your sense of what the lessons that are being learned, the changes that are being made uh, in policing in general and from sort of a front row seat in terms of what the APD has been um, going through in the last, you know, particularly five or six years. Extremely dynamic situation in the last five or six years. And I think the one thing that I would want to tell the public is that the officers on the department were welcoming the DOJ. There was no like, hey, we don't want the DOJ here. 
welcomed it because we're always about training. What can make us better? What can keep us safer? What can keep uh, the public safe? Um, so when the DOJ came in, there wasn't um, a pushback as is kind of portrayed in the media, like we're, we're, we're head to head. Maybe management because you're, you're talking money and you're talking time. And, right. Because there, there, there were some uh, news stories about the city being upset with the uh, DOJ-appointed mediator yeah. who was working Ginger, with yeah. Ginger. Yeah. yeah. That was more the top-level side. I can tell yeah. you the troop side, though, uh, embraced all the training. Mm-hmm. And now when prior to the DOJ we had about 150 officers CIT trained, everybody in the whole department CIT trained. Our officer-involved shootings have gone down over the years since we had more training. Um, but remember, look, policing is very dynamic. We will have more officer-involved shootings. It's just the way it's going it it, to That is policing in America. I mean, when you do see these extreme examples of shootings, uh, unarmed people, uh, maybe people with cell phones, uh, extremely dynamic situations, you're asking a human being to almost to uh, become a superhuman being and be able to put process information in a way that we just can't. So when somebody comes out with a cell phone and points in the direction of an officer, an officer reacts. It's based on training and then um, Graham versus Connor and all the laws of what is the guidelines for police, policing in America. That's what we have to fall back on. So, Just let me be clear about what yeah. you're describing yeah. because when you're saying it comes upon someone who's pointing a cell phone in their face I mean it's not a weapon but what do you what are you describing there I just want to be clear I'm describing a half second of somebody jumping out of a car with a dynamic motion pointing an object at an officer and I, an officer I see what you're saying within half a second has oh, to so, figure so, out so so they're pointing a, a cell phone or a camera and it's mistaken for a gun yeah okay so that's the kind of situation yeah. you were describing tragic on both sides for the person who gets shot and for the yeah. officer involved Right. The reason I ask is because, I mean, the whole dynamic of citizens pointing cameras at uh, Well, these are extreme cases I'm talking about. Well, you see these in the media where people, you know, kids get shot with toy guns because they point them at officers. I mean, they're horrible. Um, It's not like, uh, you know, it's just like I said, it's not like Hollywood. We're a very defined bad guy and there's a defined police officer and they have an interaction. It just doesn't happen that way. So you're asking regular citizens to go through an academy and train them human beings and then asking them sometimes to do mm-hmm. extraordinary acts, you know, and, and be able to um, process things within milliseconds. Now, you know, the flip side is you have all the time in the world to debate, well, he shouldn't have done that, he shouldn't have done that. But in that scope of that moment, that's what pl- police officers' standards are. And policing isn't perfect, you know, it really isn't. Um, that's why... You know, guys leave early or guys don't want to do the job, but that's why we're short 400 officers with the Albuquerque Police Department. It's mm-hmm. very tough to ask a young man or woman to come join a profession that's such under such scrutiny now in America and um, ask them to put their lives on the line. Well, you know? and the standards are getting higher right. in terms of the type of individual that can do all the things that we've been describing mm-hmm. in terms of communication, in terms of skills that you want, you know, right. uh, practical skills. So uh, in some ways, you know, if we insist on higher vetting so that we get fewer troubled cops or troubled people who don't make good cops, mm-hmm. uh, maybe those uh, vacancies will take longer to fill, be harder to fill, not to mention just what you've described, which is whether or not people want to 
apply for those jobs job, in the yeah. first place. Yeah, it's uh, very dynamic right now. It's not just Albuquerque. It's around the nation mm-hmm. uh, trying to retain people. Um, and, you know, policing is unique. Uh, you are, like I said at the beginning of this interview, you're always building your education and your experience through every day of work. Sure. You know, so that experience in policing, you know, keeping these veteran officers around who have kind of been there, seen these types of calls, been able to speak somebody off a bridge, that's kind of what you're relying on when these critical incidents happen. And, of course, you're going to have rookie officers that are learning and yeah. watching, but um, very different time in America for policing, you know. And we should be, and I think every department should have lapel cameras, and we were one of the first to embrace it. But having said that, you do see a lot of violent actions between officers and, and um, citizens that typically you would never see. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that should be debated. Absolutely should be debated. Yeah. Well, let me close with this then, because you mentioned when I was asking you about sort of the arc and what you've seen that's changed, Mm -hmm. you said in the case of APD, there are fewer officer-related shootings. Um, Beyond the statistics, which is one thing you can point to, what makes you feel like, what else are you seeing that makes you feel like that we are in a state of change in terms of police, their relationship with citizens, and their hope of, uh, you know, avoiding um, problem encounters that hurt everybody. Yeah, and I, I, I hate statistics. What I rely on is the human factor. So I know in the last four years or so, I've had more positive encounters with public, and I think the public's had a, a lot, a better conduit to address us through our community police councils, through our citizens police academy through everything, through transparency, through our cameras. And you really do see a different side of policing that you may have not seen before. Um, So I think the transparency is the key to communication. And really it does come down to communication. It's either communicating with a guy on a bridge, communicating with a guy who is a victim of crime or or committed a crime. Um, I think the better communication and also our department has slowed critical incidents down. So you will have a 13-hour interaction with somebody on a bridge where maybe in the past, all right, two hours, let's get this guy off the bridge and force an encounter. So time is on our side. We realize that always better training, um, communication skills, and trying to get the younger generation to kind of open up and be more communicators than enforcers. I think that's the key probably to policing, you know, in the future. Again, time will tell whether a trend toward more humane policing will spread through Albuquerque's police force. But clearly, these all-too-regular incidents of potential jumpers and other encounters will offer officers a chance to employ, as Lieutenant Drobik called it, nonstop empathy. More with the lieutenant and our full conversation with him at our website, peacetalksradio.com, in our April 2018 episode. I'm Paul Ingalls. Employment of empathy in police work is at the heart of a book called Humane Policing, written by former Colorado Sheriff's Deputy Darren Spencer. Spencer's career was cut short after just a few years on the force by a medical condition, but he feels he'd already found keys to better relations with citizens in his time on duty. Spencer says the U.S. has fallen behind in efforts to minimize inhuman interactions between law enforcement and the citizenry. As a whole, we are. And the problem is is getting worse because as the profession gets more difficult to do, with the lack of public perception and appreciation of law enforcement, fewer and fewer people want to get into the profession. 
And when you have the lack of people joining the profession, your quality of individuals naturally drops. A good example would be back in 2004 when I became post-certified. There was well over 100 viable applicants to every open position. Now some agencies are having trouble filling open positions with qualified people. And that is a huge turn of events in just over a decade. The problem we have now and the reason it's getting worse is because you have experienced veterans of 10, 15, 20 years that are like asking themselves, of, why am I doing this? Why am I continuing to doing this? I'm not, I don't feel like I'm making a difference. And there's a huge liability risk. And they're like, it's not worth it anymore. Back in 2004, when I was in the academy, they jokingly said, you know, if you want people to like you, you need to join the fire academy. Well, I disagree with that because the way I did my job and the way I impacted people in a positive light, 90% of the people I arrested thanked me. And that encouraged me to continue to do my job better. And if we appreciate law enforcement, they will continue to do a better job and more people will want to do the job. I was successful because I was able to get the people I was serving to relate to me as an individual doing a job. Because when a cop shows up on scene, there's initial resentment toward just the uniform. And you have to get them to see past the uniform and see you as a person. And if you can find common ground with them to relate to, that's when they will start to listen. And that's what I help teach. Darren Spencer, in your book, you give what I'd call play-by-play details of cases that you were on in your service in the Weld County, Colorado Sheriff's Department. And if I had to define the overarching emphasis theme of many of these stories, it would be an emphasis on quality of communication between officers and the public, um, officers and serious suspects or inmates, and even officers with each other. Would you agree? Yes, and I attribute a lot of my success to my ability to help people and have people help me. I would utilize my dispatchers, I would utilize fellow officers, I would utilize anybody that I could to help me do my job better because in law enforcement we lose sight of the fact that we're public servants. And so we're there to serve the person that's yelling and cussing and being disrespectful to us. So when safety is not an imminent threat, that's when we can do a better job, that's when we can improve somebody's lives. You say in your book that a common approach that officers utilize in the field and are trained to utilize is ask them, tell them, make them. And then you offer nine or ten points that you think might be more useful. Uh, They're on page 11 in your book. Could, Could you read through them for us? Certainly. On page 11, on the possibilities, it's uh, addressing the initial perception and reactions of the individuals involved before acting, remaining calm when being tested, receiving and redirecting resentment for law enforcement, starting a conversation to get individuals talking, listening for key factors to improve rapport, having individuals give you leads and help you track down people, maintaining patience and professionalism to change the perspective of individuals and bystanders alike, Rewarding positive behavior from both individuals and bystanders. And finally, gaining cooperation by giving individuals a moral victory and allowing them to salvage some pride. Let's talk about some of these more specifically. The first, for example, address the initial perception and reactions of the people involved before acting. So what do you mean by that? And what's a brief example from your experience of that idea in practice? 
Well, it, it's easy to say that if a cop is in your home, you're having a bad day. You know, they're upset, they're emotional, they may be high, intoxicated. When you get there, they're not happy that you're there, even though they called you. And so you got to let them vent. you got to let them address and say, okay, how are they going to respond to me when I show up on scene? And then am I going to get more assertive or am, am I going to let them voice their concerns? And that's when the tone of the conversation can go really bad or it can start to improve. Even your answers are touching on some of the other uh, items that you mentioned in your list, like receiving and redirecting resentment for law enforcement. You kind of alluded to that a moment ago. Talk about the dynamic of receiving that energy yourself and what you have to do with it. One of the, the points that I like to talk about is an article written by uh, Seth Stalton about the law enforcement's warrior problem. And it talks about how that approach makes us believe that everybody's out to kill us and harm us where I like to say we are actually the calm in the storm. So you have all this chaos going on, and we're the ones there to bring peace and to bring rationale and our thoughts and bring it back under control. That's our job as peace officers. Well, once you've grounded yourself, then you can attempt to redirect it with the person that you're dealing with, that uh, negative energy, right? Yeah, I was very good at making fun of myself, making light of the profession, and a lot of times they'd be yelling and disrespectful to me. And I'd be like, you know what? I get it. You don't like cops. I said, there's a lot of cops I don't like. You know, I don't drive a big red shiny truck. So I, I understand that you're not happy. And that would usually make them chuckle a little bit and actually say, okay, this guy's a little different. Humor doesn't always work, but it's helpful. Um, compassion is, is very helpful. I try to start a conversation with them, something other than why I'm there, other than enforcing the law. Because as soon as they see me as a person, that's when they're like, okay, this guy's just doing his job. And he's here, and he actually cares, and he wants to help me. What are other examples of uh, looking and listening for ways to connect with people out in the field? Well, if you're in, in somebody's house, you can see pictures, you can see sports memorabilia, you can see anything related to hobbies. Uh, if you're um, on a traffic stop, you could be talking about their vehicle, their clothing, Anything that you can find common interest or something you can generally talk about that's not why you're enforcing the law. And as soon as you get just that couple sentences of dialogue, that's when they become more receptive to you. I would guess that connecting over kids is good, too. Now, now you have a, a son. Do you ever purposefully try to connect with uh, their kids if you know they've got kids? I, I use kids a lot, uh, both in questioning as far as them being witnesses because they make some of the best witnesses. But, like, I would even go against my agency's policy. Um, they used to teach whenever you were going to arrest somebody, whenever you knew you were going to arrest somebody, that you would get them in handcuffs as soon as possible. And I adamantly disagreed with this teaching philosophy. And I told, said I would get people in handcuffs when it was appropriate and I thought it would better best suit my situation. And because the people I'm there to serve, they don't care what I think of them, but they care what their children think of them. And I would give them a choice, and I would say, okay, I don't want your kid to see me put you in handcuffs. And I would say, you can cooperate with me, and we can go out to—I'll let you hug your kids. You can say goodbye to your spouse, and we can go out to my car, and I handcuff you out there. I said, or if you don't want to cooperate, then— there will probably be additional charges. You'll further traumatize your kids and your spouse, and you'll end up in the car anyway. 
Well, this sounds a little bit like the point you were making in another one of your items, uh, giving individuals a moral victory, uh, a way to salvage some pride. Uh, say more about that. Yeah, and it goes uh, specifically what you were talking about, the ask them, tell them, make them philosophy. And it goes against that because you're in somebody's house and they're upset and you ask them something, but they didn't hear you because they're upset. And then you're telling them something. And then as soon as you start to back them into a corner and start demanding they do something in their own house, that's when they're like, well, I'm going to go to jail anyway. I'm going to salvage some pride just by taking a swing at a cop. And that's when we got to take a step back and say, okay, how can we help this individual? Whenever safety is not an imminent threat and we walk into a situation with our first thought being, how am I going to help this person? It completely changes the whole dialogue. One of your ideas is to reward positive behavior from individuals on the scene, including bystanders. What, what does that look like? So it's just thanking people, apologizing to them, admitting when you're wrong as a cop because we're people. And as soon as they see you as a person, that's when they're like, okay, this guy doesn't have an ego. He's not trying to power trip with the badge. He's not trying to force his authority upon me. And so I would always reward the positive behavior And I'd let them hug their kids. I'd let them say goodbye to their spouse. And I would give them options where they'd be like, okay, you know what? I know I did something wrong, and I know I'm going to go to jail. But this guy's going to let me say goodbye to my family, hug my kids. And that way, my kid doesn't see me in a bad light of being handcuffed and, and drug away. And that's one of the ways that I rewarded people doing my job. Now, Darren, it looks to me like you've been drawing from peacemaking philosophy for inspiration. Your book is loaded with quotes from folks like Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela, Confucius, Mark Twain. First, let me ask you if you went looking for these quotes just for the book, or were some of them part of your learning and experience otherwise? Um, I like to be inspired like most people, and so I would draw motivation from these different individuals, and so I wanted to tie my personality into the book with the quotes of what inspired me and what drives me. Here's a quote you used from Dr. King. uh, The ultimate measure of a man, and I'll add, or a woman, is not where he or she stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he or she stands at times of challenge or controversy. What have you seen on the job and in training regimens that would help officers do a better job as things get testy or even dangerous on a crime scene that we haven't talked about. So that's what uh, people need to understand about um, law enforcement and people in law enforcement, is we're people. And we have bad days just like everybody else. The more we are overworked and overburdened, the more stressed we get, and we're getting challenged more and more on a daily basis with cell phones. I had a lady, you know, hold a cell phone at like 12 inches from my face and and had a steady stream of cuss words coming out of her mouth. And all I was doing was just asking to contact somebody. So we we have people in society trying to inflame and incite a reaction from law enforcement just for the purpose of gaining that reaction. And that's where in law enforcement we got to be like, okay, we're the trained professional. We're the ones that have to take that breath and say, okay, I'm not going to react and respond the way this individual wants me to and I'm going to move forward. I'm going to be that calm and that storm that they're creating. Because as soon as they know they're not going to gain a reaction out of you, that's when they start to calm down. Hmm. I guess in some ways that's the the value of the cell phone technology or the uh, lapel 
cameras that more and more cops are, are wearing uh, that it kind of keeps you on your professional toes, doesn't it? Well, once, uh, and I'm a big proponent of body cams um, because it, it adds to the transparency of the profession and how and what we do because a lot of times the media just sells the negative story of what happens badly. and But there's all these other incidences where we're doing good and we're promoting positive change and helping people move forward in their life. And it's actually interesting because the more you become familiar with the body cam and comfortable with it, you actually just stop thinking that you're wearing it. So it's not a device that's a distraction anymore. But as people get used to it, it, it is kind of awkward. But the more you get used to it, the more it's not even there. And you just continue to do your job in the way you should. More from our conversation with former sheriff's deputy and author of Humane Policing, Darren Spencer, when Peace Talks Radio continues in a moment. It's Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Let's jump back into my conversation recorded with Darren Spencer, a former Colorado Sheriff's deputy, who in 2017 wrote a book called Humane Policing. Let's spend a moment acknowledging the challenge itself. Um, You described a call in your book, an individual in a motor home that you were questioning about some disturbance. He, He reached for a gun on a dresser. As it turned out, to hand it to you, and I think it was a BB gun or a pellet pistol or something, you described holding off just for a split second on going for your own gun based on observing how he was handling it to determine that it wasn't a real threat. Can, can you recall that instance? Am I getting that right? I do. It was early in the morning. It was about 9 a.m., and I was going into a mobile home. And I know this individual had prior contact with law enforcement, and gang activity, and so there was several different flags in the system alerting me to his uh, demeanor. And he invited me into his house. He was still asleep, and we walked back to the bedroom, and I was explaining to him that he couldn't own and possess firearms with the protection order that I was serving. And without notifying me, he just reached under a pillow and pulled out another pistol. And I had seen another pistol sitting on the dresser that had a small bore size, so it was either a BB gun or a pellet gun. And I only caught a glimpse of the gun between his arm and his body. And how he was holding it, his demeanor, his reaction, his tone, all of that I had to decide in a fraction of a second if I was going to draw my weapon and shoot him because at the range I was at, I wouldn't have been able to give him any warning since he already had a weapon in his hand. 
And those are the split-second decisions we're forced to make, and we have to live with those decisions we make for the rest of our lives. And that's where people are so judgmental on seeing these different videos and they want a Monday night quarterback, the the officer doing the job. And so I I never second-guess an officer's position on what he took because it's very hard to put yourself exactly in his shoes, even if you do see video and audio of the incident. Yeah, I was thinking about as I read this about, um, you know, numerous cases of people with non-lethal weapons being shot by police who felt threatened. Ninety percent of the time, juries would support the police take on that because by the book, you know, if the cop feels threatened, then he's generally okay on using lethal force. I mean, is it even possible to train law enforcement personnel to reduce the chances of undue force being applied? Um, Because, I mean... If an officer guesses wrong, you could have guessed wrong. You know, uh, a person could have been killed. Or, uh, but if you guess wrong on the other side of the equation, you could be killed. Yeah, it's my not only me, but my family that's impacted if I make a poor decision. And that's the burden that we're faced on and have to deal with on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And I think one key training area that we can improve on is the when we're trying working with mental health issues. And in situations like that, we need to have tasers out at the ready so we're not drawing our firearm whenever they're just in close proximity to us. And we need to have reactionary training that is not just lethal, and it is also less lethal. So that you can have taser, pepper spray, uh, baton, uh, beanbag guns. There's a whole slew of tools that can be utilized. But the problem is that reaction and the distance you have to react. And if we have the less lethal already deployed, that's where we can save lives and either tase somebody that's charging at us instead of um, discharging a firearm. You do write quite a bit about your own mistakes and mistakes by other officers. It's kind of refreshing in this book to read that. Uh, But you say that officers need to be transparent about mistakes, but you also write that quote, our society's overuse of civil litigation is a direct enemy of that transparency. Could you say more about that conundrum? Yeah, the we need to be more transparent to gain the trust of our community and society as a whole. But the problem is everybody is looking to get paid for any sort of action that they don't agree, agree with. And so that makes departments um, not stand up for their officers' decisions more because they're concerned about the legal liability on a civil standpoint because an officer should never be considering will this action you know make me lose my my home and my car and all this stuff it should be okay is this the right reason am I doing this for the right reason not how is it viewed but am I doing the right thing and that's a big difference because we shouldn't be weighing in a monetary value and we're actually seeing it on the city level too where police incidents due to public perception of law enforcement, they're make, reaching settlements, not based on right and wrong, but based on monetary savings of, okay, if this goes to court, we could pay 10 times as much as this settlement, even though we don't agree with it should be settled. And that's the society we live in today, and that's what I'm trying to change. Hmm. It's really tough, though. I mean, a police officer's mistakes can sometimes result in a devastating injustice, uh, loss of life or liberty. 
I mean, those cases need to be adequately litigated to some extent, don't they? Oh, certainly. I'm not uh, relinquishing um, liability of an individual's actions, uh, not by any stretch of the imagine, imagination. And when we do bad things, we should be held accountable. But it should be taken into account what we were trying to do, mm-hmm. not so much the outcome. We should be taking into account the at- intention of the action. Because there there are bad apples. There are people that act ma- maliciously as law enforcement. We're people. We're going to make mistakes. And, you know, we can't be held to a, a perfect standard. And that's what our society is saying. Because you have everybody judging cops, yet they would never choose to be a cop. And, and that's the disconnect. And I'm trying to educate people of why cops do things and how they do things to hopefully bring about more understanding so we can come together as a society. Darren Spencer, regarding school shootings and mass shootings in general, you you wrote of a case where your inquiry of a couple of students uh, there in Colorado just talking guns in a lunchroom at school resulted in steps that may have thwarted a school shooting event. Can you digest that story in less than a minute or so for us? Certainly. There was a couple of high school special needs kids who played a game every day at lunch about um, shooting up the high school and covering who they would target, when they would target. And what made the case so important was that I included the parents in my investigation because they were concerned and wanted to know the truth behind their uh, kids as well. And by including the parents in the investigation and the community, that's where I was able to to gain actual truth and understanding of what was being talked about and what was being planned and initiated and was able to bring a resolution to a problem that could have been extremely tragic. Mm -hmm. And I think the students were suspended. There was some consequence for it. Uh, What else is the lesson that you think uh, to take from that story? Well, in all school shootings, I think we need to, as a society, Um, get past the negative condentation and obsession of watching the train wreck, so to speak. We need to stop giving notoriety to these shooters because every time we do, we're actually encouraging the next mass shooting. And so we need to be more involved in our community, more involved with the parents so we can prevent situations and know about situations before they occur so then we can fix them. One thing I don't want to stray from too much is that in your blog you wrote that in almost every case that I'm aware of someone known to the shooter could see the signs of hate towards a group or society. We need to encourage people to come forward when they see these troubling signs of people so they can get help. Because you know in the conversation after mass shootings this is uh, the part of a solution that seems to get short shrift to me. Because you know we don't really have a public information campaign about how people can be more alert that's the sort of if you see something say something approach that you know we often hear of regarding uh, international terrorism Uh, it sounds like you believe that we should be uh, adopting that stance as a society uh, more so well yeah if if we just had an anonymous hotline to call when somebody's concerned about the actions of an individual, then somebody could look into those actions and say, okay, is there a viable issue here 
or is there not? Don't most local police forces have that, have a cops line or something like that? They do, but it's not, it's not well, it's not put out there very well. People aren't knowledgeable of it. They're not like, oh, this person's acting really weird. I should call. It's like as an afterthought. Oh, maybe I could have done this. Yeah. Where it goes back into education, and we need to educate people more on how they can get involved. And the community and law enforcement need to get together to help solve the problem. Society needs to understand that we are doing way more good than we are bad, even though 99% of all the stories we see about cops are about how we screw up. Yeah, in your blog on the mass shooting issue, you did chastise the media's coverage, uh, how they report the shooter as a problem. Um, Mm -hmm. This is a bit of a conundrum, and I'm talking to you as a journalist, too. Uh, Doesn't a full and complete exploration of who it is and, and why it may have come to this I take your point and feel very uh, much the same way about the endless cycle of the horror that the shooter is perpetrating, but an exploration of the shooter's story seems more to point towards solutions to me. I mean, your next paragraph of the blog even offered something of a profile of a typical shooter. So how do we even come to those notions without investigation into a shooter's background and exactly what happened and uh, well let me ask are you saying in essence that that should be the work of law enforcement and not reported out to the public in 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 the news yeah and i don't have a problem you know going back into why it occurred but why do we need to show a a picture of the individual and keep mentioning their name Mm -hmm. and all the headlines are deadliest shooting since or deadliest shooting ever you know, we are keeping score for these people that that want to, you know, get back at society. And then they're also learning from previous mass shooting events of how to do it better. And that's, that's the problem. That's why these things are getting worse, not better. There's much more on our website from our conversation with Darren Spencer, author of the book Humane Policing and the website humanepolicing.com. Look for our April 2018 episode. That's peacetalksradio.com for more on all of our episodes, more links and resources on each topic, transcripts, and a donate button you can click on to help us continue this work. Support also comes from KUNM at the University of New Mexico and businesses like a Spinal Health and Movement Center operated by Ruben Ramirez in Albuquerque's Knob Hill neighborhood. Allie Adelman composed and performs our theme. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Thank you.